What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline. It's been a minute, man. How you doing? Man, I'm doing well. I got a text at 7 a.m. this morning from uh, my, my friend from college and, and after Akeem, and he just texted me. He's like, what, y'all not going to pot anymore? You just done for the summer? <laughs> and I, I laughed because, yeah, man, we've took about taken about a month off. Um, and this is also the earliest. Usually we've, we've recorded some late nights after Versus. Um, typically, you and I speak in the late morning, early afternoon. We're doing it a few hours earlier this morning. And I think it's just because we're so eager to talk about what we got today. Yeah, man. Uh, we're going to get into the top 20 rap albums of all time. And it's a hotly debated topic. There's a list that was dropped by Rolling Stone that has the internet on fire. We're going to get to that. Uh, you know, just a quick note on, you know, we've said this before many times, but we want to talk about things that actually matter. So there are some weeks where there's tons of stuff and we got great material. There's other weeks where there's really just not that much. So we're just not going to come and fill the space. Um, so that's why we take time off. Um, but we got a lot to chop up about this. We were resistant to even addressing it because uh, let's just say, I won't get into it yet, but but you'll be able to get the context as we discuss this. But um we weren't going to react to it because Rolling Stone is not known as a hip hop publication. And a lot of the rankings were very, very questionable and controversial. Um, you know, there's speculation as to why that might have been. Maybe there were people who were younger and didn't really understand the full context and historical, um, you know, relevance of certain hip hop albums. Maybe it was because it was people who were not of the culture Maybe it was trolling and really looking to get clicks. We don't know. Um, or maybe it's just like what they believed. And, you know, it, it is what it is. But uh, I think it's fair to say that most hip hop fans took great offense at the list. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I, um, you know, for years, I mean, you and I have said very kind things about the legacy of Rolling Stone. I do agree with you with what you just said. Um, I've, I always thought they had some incredible interviews um, with hip hop artists, but when it came down to reviews and rankings and lists, you know, I was much more um, prone to picking up double XL, the source, you know, um, rap pages, our publications, you know, hip hop publications. And yeah, it, it's funny because it came out, I wasn't clamoring to read it. Um, most things, no shots. Cause you know, it's a weird, it's a weird time for publishing period, but the last few times I've gone to Rolling Stone, everything is behind a paywall. Um, and then this list came out and I just right away scanned to the top. You know, I just wanted to see what it was. And, and, and like you said, um, you know, a respected publication. And some of those names on the list are people I know, people that I've worked with in very, you know, limited capacities, people I admire. But I went to the top, um, kind of shrugged it off. I saw that it was trending on Twitter. And then... About a week later, my 72-year-old aunt, who often also, you know, tunes into this, texted me and goes, what's your opinion on all of this? And I was like, yo, how did this hit your radar? And she's like, the New York Times is talking about it for the reasons you just said of what is the bias. Um, and a lot of folks have pointed out, and I say this, you know, as me that, you know, was there an absence of people of color, you know, contributing to the list? Like, who are the folks, who are the stakeholders coming up with 
this list because Rolling Stone will always have one of the loudest voices in the mix. So yeah, I've been analyzing all of those kind of takes and movable parts. Yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan or have been a huge fan of Rolling Stone. I had a subscription for 30 years. I gave it up when <clears throat> they changed ownership, I think three or four years ago, and Jan Winter was no longer a part of it. Uh, it definitely raised me. Uh, I wanted AFH when I founded it to be kind of the hip hop Rolling Stone meets the hip hop HBO, like mm -hmm. really that depth of quality of storytelling, in depth, um, you know, analysis. I really wanted us to be that, and you, in large part, have manifested that vision for us. But and they've had like, you know, they've had a, an interesting relationship with hip hop. You know, I think that they did embrace it relatively early on compared to outlets like MTV and other kind of mainstream outlets. I don't think that they covered it as cover stories until uh, 80s. I think I remember some Run DMC covers and things like that, um, likely yeah. from Aerosmith and, and the, the crossover that uh, success that Run DMC had. But you're right. I think people saw the source as the Bible for for hip hop. And, you know, it quickly transcended Rolling Stone, Double XL, even Vibe more so. Uh, but all that being said, why do you think people care so much about Rolling Stone has to say about hip hop? I mean, Rolling Stone is still a staff publication and, you know, I think that oftentimes Billboard has kind of re reverted back to being, you know, about the industry for the industry, you know, and, and then a little bit of front facing, you know, of, of like, hey, what are what are the what are the historic moments happening? But Rolling Stone has still as, as a publication, you know, captured the history of things. I mean, when we think of these lists, um, I was just recently you know, talking with somebody about, you know, them either not putting on Prince or putting him too low as the greatest guitarist of all time. And the way that that may have impacted some Prince performances in the mid two thousands. But as a kid, I remember, you know, Rolling Stone has always come up with these lists and by and large, they haven't been, you know, canceled for them. They've always created discourse, but now we're living in a time where you always have social media to have the conversation after the conversation. And I think that's why Rolling Stone doing a hip hop list in 2022 with you know from the beginning of the genre as it exists on albums to present day that's a that's a mighty task and that's always going to come with some damage control i imagine yeah so let's talk about lists man um lots of people have lists out there um and there's lists about everything now there's best albums of the year there's uh greatest rappers of all time there's richest rap like there's all sorts of lists so why are lists so important to people? I mean, I think it's, 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 it's medicine wrapped in candy. You know, if you do it right, lists are always going to, you know, bring things into the conversation. If I say a list of the best, you know, hamburger in New York City, you already have your idea and I have mine. And then we already come into the context of it. If you say, well, you know, I've lived there for years and you're just, you know, somebody who's, who's, come into town once a week or a couple times a month and it but at the end of the day if I say oh it's on it's at this place the next time you walk by it you'll be you'll be inclined to try it and I think lists at their best do that if I if I give you my top 10 guitarists of all time and you know seven of them and you think that I'm a 
you know, qualified person to have a stake in the conversation, you might be curious about the other three. It creates discourse. It creates interest. Um, but they can also be, you know, very inflammatory. What, what do you think? I mean, as compared to that? Yeah, I think, I think we're inherently competitive and have a need to rank things. And, uh, you know, it goes from cars to wealth to whatever it is. And with music, even though we know that it's subjective, I think that there's something that appeals to each of us at our core. You know, we were talking about a movie just before this. I think we know art when we see it. And, we, you know, a lot of people disagree, can disagree about that. But there's something core that makes us think that we can uh, make it objective. And so... I think the lists help with that. And like you said, they do foster the conversation. But, um, you know, I think I think that it's the competitiveness. It's the, the social aspect, the, the camaraderie that comes with it. Um, you know, it, it actually can get really heated. There have been, you know, a lot of barbershop uh, arguments. Uh, I think, you know, some probably escalated to fisticuffs. You know, it, it, it's I think it's just core to who we are. Yeah, I mean, there is an element, too, of if, you know, you tell me you believe one thing and I tell you I believe another, and now we got to back it up. And that's just, that is discourse, that is debate, that is what we enjoy. And I think you can do it over quarterbacks, you can do it over, you know, basketball players. And as hip-hop heads, we often do it. But what's funny is, you know, you and I have worked together for almost a decade. I mean, we're, we're, we're like breathing down the neck of a decade. Um, and we, the first question you ever asked me, one of them was like, you know, what's your favorite hip hop album of all time? Not the best, but that was like a getting to know you, you know, that's like, a, hey, you know, what's your tattoo? Like, how do you express yourself? To me, that is a far more interesting question than the best, because the best is always going to be subjective too. Um, you know, you're always going to bring in your own bias of when you grew up, where you grew up, what radio you had, what video you had, you know, how you spent your time, who your friends were. And that's going to influence everything. And that idea of best is always, um, it's crazy. And it's one of the reasons why throughout my career, I've stayed away from it. But I agree with you, though. There is a part of, it's fun to make music and art competitive. And I don't know about you. I think you do the same thing. But starting on January 1st every year, I start a list of the albums um, that I, that I love, you know, I want to, I want to fit them into a 10 or a 15. And then I always start a playlist of what are the best songs across genre this year. And that to me is competition. That's like sports rankings. So I do get that compulsion that I think we all have. Yeah. You know, the part of me that wants to like actually find the answer to like, mm -hmm. really like take it out of subjectivity and make it objective um, is what inspired our GOAT competitions, our greatest of all time competitions. You know, I don't think that any one person or any one staff or any one brand can determine what the best of anything is. I do think, though, that if you have a consensus amongst thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, whatever it is, people, that you're getting to a place where you can say, okay, cool, maybe this is truly the best product, whatever the category may be. Mm. And so that's what we did, um, you know, starting back, I think it was 2015, we started holding contests and these were viewed by millions of people. Um, 2014 is where it began late in the yeah. year, not to correct you, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to consider as we're talking about 2022, but continue. Yeah. And we started with greatest of all time MC. 
And then we did album and we did groups and we did producers and we had a bunch of things that had like incredible participation. And we actually saw like a thread, a friend of mine was on a group chat of like uh, some of our most respected peers um, when we did the first one uh, talking about the momentum that we had gotten and how we really needed to handle it with care because uh, of the importance. So that was like actually one of the highest honors for me to see that, um, even though we weren't a part of the chat. But it also let me know the power that these things have, you know. Um, that was back in 2014, as you say, and Liz predated that. What do you think the role of Liz is in 2022? Does it have the same impact that it did back then? No, and I mean, I don't think so. And I think even in 2014, um, why the Ambrosia for Heads Finding the Goat competition worked is it wasn't our staff going to people and saying, this is what it is. It was more interesting of a person in the street holding a microphone of what do you think? Um, and yeah, there's places, there's publications like Rolling Stone and Complex and Pitchfork that have always done lists. But I kind of think, you know, we as, as information consumers were already inundated with them by then. And by now, um, unless you have a reason, like you and I did a list um, at the end of 2020. Uh, no, at the end of 2019 of the, uh, the 20 best albums of that decade. To me, that's interesting. When you look at the 2010s and you want to really make sense of that decade, it's fun to come up with a list. And I believe that you and I you know, presented it of like, tell us where we're wrong. We're not coming to you and saying, boom, this is what it is. End of story written in stone. It's a conversation and it's a reason to celebrate not only the albums that, that we agreed upon, but, you know, be it on Facebook, be it on YouTube, be it on Twitter, having the discussion of other people that say, hey, you guys didn't include this one and here's why. And I love that. To me, that is far more interesting and fresh than a publication talking at you saying this is what it what it is now argue. Yeah. And what, what we'll get into this a bit later on in more detail. But what we did with these GOAT competitions was we had people vote. Like we put it out there on social media and had people come and actually use a poll to vote. We did an NCAA bracket style. We picked, our staff picked something like 150 albums or something to start as a framework. But because we truly wanted to, it to be fully inclusive of all titles, we also had wildcard rounds where people could write in um, albums they thought should have been considered and then they were then put into the bracket so in theory every rap album ever made had a chance at being considered in this and we used that and it was over the course of several weeks if not months where um, this this unfolded until we got to a number one and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that list because we got top 20 um, the top 20 based off that that we think is the authentic list because not only is it, you know, was it formed in some, in some part by our staff, but it was is shaped by millions of people through social discourse, voting, and things like that. And I, I will say that I think that our readers, our listeners, uh, people who are, are um, consuming our publication are some of the most devoted and knowledgeable fans of hip hop in the world. And so I would put their opinion, their collective opinion above anybody else's fan base, period. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that we've, as a brand, always had a greater respect for our readers than, than, than many, you know, 
um <laughs> every time somebody's like yo i'm unfollowing your page because of this or you got to stop covering so and so like those hurt is too strong of a word but i pay note to when those comments are made and you know you and i know that if if we share something we're putting our brand on the line and it takes a hell of a lot longer to build a follower on social media or somebody that comes to your site or publication every day than it does to upset somebody and have them walk away forever. And we, we take that responsibility with a lot of honor. The one thing I do want to add, just as you talk about the tournament, and this was very much your idea when we did this modeled after the NCAA bracket, when it came to albums, we, in the early stages, you know, similar to any playoffs in sports, you started within your conference. So to, to, to kick off, um, you know, a competition and having an album from 1985 or 86 compete against an album from 1995 or 1996 was unfair. Um, so you really sat down and, you know, put the pin, pins on a map and really came up with a system that at least in those early stages, albums were really competing against their equal, you know, and what was being, what was being compared were their merits. But, you know, the, the length of an album, the possibility of features, just what's happened with hip hop, you know, rhyming and production has all evolved. And then when you got to the final 32 or 16, you started seeing albums from 10, 20 years apart doing battle because they had to. And that to me was interesting, but there was a lot of care and attention brought into that alone. Yeah, I wanted to protect against biases because people have biases against the past and toward the past and against the future and toward the future. You know, um, a lot of folks in their 40s and 50s don't really think that there's been anything that could be considered a top 10 album that was made in the 2000s and certainly not the 2010s. And vice versa, a lot of a lot of kids who were, you know, 15, 16, probably don't think anything from the 80s could ever be a top 10 hip hop album. So I wanted to, you know, really maintain context and, um, and then do it in a way that it reflected kind of the, the, the music of the times first before we really got into the, the dead on comparisons for all decades. Um, you know, I think that speaks to, you know, the role of lists in 2022 as well, like social media, there's just so much content put out every day now. Mm -hmm. I, I saw this stat, and this was a few years ago that between the beginning of recorded history, and I think 2000, there was something like two exabytes of information produced, um, you know, and now there's something like two, like two exabytes created of information created every couple of days or so and at this point it might be every day yeah so it just shows you just the proliferation of just media and stuff that's put out there and so i think in order to cut through the noise and filter through that you got to put out wild stuff you know uh you got to put out stuff that's going to be controversial and kudos to rolling stone for even keeping the conversation alive mm -hmm. irrespective of the list and you know um we can talk about the merits of it at some point. Uh, I think it's a, a major accomplishment just to keep a conversation going in, in this day and age beyond a day or two, uh, just because there's so much to compete with. Yeah, I 100% agree with what you said. And, you know, that, that just really quickly, that point about biases is interesting. And after we did the first Finding the Goat, um, you know, we produced five videos and they're on YouTube and I encourage anyone to watch them that looks at the, the GOAT MC conversation. And again, this was 2015. 
um, and analyzes how that conversation is influenced, you know, things like how women are often overlooked in that conversation and why, or, you know, that, that sense of nostalgia, you know, the, the favorite artist you had when you were, you know, falling in love with hip hop in those formative years for yourself, whether you're X age or Y age is going to drive the conversation. And I think we're living in a time right now. I mean, this is the age of reconsideration. You know, (laughs) you look at something like the history books that are in school and there's so many things that people are not, that we're not taught that are now, you know, on the, on the front lines of, should we teach, should we not teach, blah, blah, blah. And, and with hip hop, that's kind of happening right now. Um, And I think that that certainly makes its way onto a lot of new lists. And like you said, we can talk about it at at a point, but, you know, when you look at Rolling Stone's top 10 list, absolutely. You know, there's, there's things that I think challenge the status quo of the hip hop album discussion, whether or not you or I, or anyone listening to this agrees with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, part of what was so controversial. So one of the things that I saw on their list was there was inclusion of a lot of diversity, right? There was a a fair amount of Southern hip hop, East coast, hip hop, West coast women. What we saw in a lot of our GOAT competitions, particularly toward women was that uh, I don't think that they were respected or reflected as much as I would have wanted. Um, Lauren Hill in particular, Lost in the first round. Um, she to lost AZ. to AZ, who's yep. a phenomenal MC. Um, yep. You know, we, we've, we've interviewed with AZ, um, you know, and uh, perhaps that was a matchup. But to say that Lauren Hill wasn't a top 100 rapper or, or whatever it was, was um, because of that, I think is a great misstep. We did a documentary about that, you know, um, and it's different in sports, right? Like people are just physically different. But in emceeing, like that's a, there's no reason why there should be a difference. Um, and it's funny, we, we just got a comment recently on one of our YouTube uh, channels. <laughs> uh, some guy like talking about how, like, did, did he need to explain to us, like, why a woman couldn't be one of the goats? It's like, come on, man. Like, really? What, why can't, like, I put Lauren Hill lyrically against just about anybody, you know, like she served people like male or female rage uh, rhapsody there's so many ill women spitters who can go bar for bar with anybody i i just don't understand why there's not that recognition yeah for sure and just as an aside of that one of the things i'm proud of is you know afh never first of all we never used the term fem c but we never limited women to being in that like you're you're in you're in your own class that's that's ridiculous. That's like, you know, white rappers in, a, in their own class or, or Latino rappers in their own class. Like, no, this is art. So 100%. And I encourage anyone to watch those videos. Shout out to Rhapsody who, um, you know, did the narration for the one on women, you know, which has a lot of interesting history there. Yeah, rap is uh, incredible, incredible. Uh, so how do you want to do this, man? You want to get into you want to talk about their list briefly before we start to break down ours or, or what? I think we go to ours. I mean, one, one, you know, if you're just very, to your point, like Southern rap thing, Rolling Stone, you know, really planted the flag for future and his uh, dirty Sprite joint. Um, And I thought that that was interesting um, because that's not something that I've found in my conversations of, you know, top X lists. And they also really in the, um, in the upper part of the list, they went to bat for Missy Elliott's Miss E album. 
And that's, that speaks entirely to my point. Like after seeing that, whether I agree with the list or not, or I think it's great or I don't, you know, that makes me want to pick up that album and play it because enough people were involved to put it on the line, to give that album its moment in the sun in this context. Um, but yeah, that, those are the two major takeaways that kind of shocked me about the top of the list. And I felt as though um, there were some great albums that weren't getting due recognition. What, any initial takeaways you had? Uh, for me, it was really, it wasn't about the albums that were included because um, they included a lot of phenomenal albums. It was truly about the ranking itself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just quick examples. They had The Chronic at number 40 and Good Kid, Mad City at number 38. Um, and ahead of those two albums, uh, who I think most people would agree are two of the, the greatest albums of all time, they had albums like Nicki Minaj's Pink Friday, uh, Chance the Rapper's Acid Rap, um, Cardi B's Invasion of Privacy, the, the Sugar Hill Gang Various, which is just a collection of singles. Yeah. Um, you know, they had Illmatic at, I think, 26, I believe, or 20, uh, 20 what is Illmatic? Um, they had Reasonable Doubt at 26, Illmatic at 24, and ahead of that, um they had you know dmx is dark and hell is hot yeah little wayne's the drought three and i was correct me um dirty sprite two but also little kim's hardcore above illmatic right. it is it's it's there's a lot like if you look at this list at any point you're gonna have some some head scratching and you're absolutely right like again i want to find a venue to give sugar hill their propers um you know sugar hill gang but to do that album in that way um doesn't make a whole host of sense to me you know they had kanye west jesus above all of that you know an album that was just maligned by a lot of people like there's just some some wild picks you know uh, and while they had dr dre's 2001 above the chronic now that's an interesting one because i actually uh when i had my first publication new rules back in 1999 i started a debate about whether or not the chronic uh, was, was 2001 was was better than the chronic uh, mm -hmm. it's longer um, sonically it is incredible like just Dre just went to a different level production and mixing wise you had incredible lyrics Snoop was still on there um, you had Hitman and M Eminem was part of an exhibit like 2001 yeah. is a sonically just pristine album that said the chronic broke history, you know, it, it created history, it broke ground. And I won't talk too much because we're going to we'll talk a bit about it, but I, it's an interesting debate, but it takes, it takes a lot to like uh, rank that above those albums. They had Drake take care at 11, uh, uh, you know, above yeah. all the albums we just talked about. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's a wild, wild ranking. It is. It is. Um, yeah. I think, I think those are some great examples and yeah um it, it was a it was a lot and it definitely got people talking if my lovely 72 year old Ann is texting me about it that says something for sure for sure so all right cool so let's talk about our own personal top 10 list okay one of the things um that's interesting for me is when i first started afh it was obviously very very uh aligned with who i am my tastes my knowledge all that stuff but over the years it really grew into its own thing and it's bigger than any one person uh, it's bigger than any team it is a collective of us as a team and 
the millions of people who've engaged with our content over the years. Um, it is its own living, breathing entity. And that was reflected in the GOAT competition we had for MCs when MF Doom took off my uh, my own personal GOAT in the top 16. He defeated Jay-Z. That's when I knew, okay, cool. This is something that um, doesn't belong to me anymore. I had the pleasure of working with it and, and, and serving the brand, but it is not mine. It is ours, you know? So, um, but we do have our own opinions and you know, we've been in this for a long time. I've been doing it for 25 plus years. You've been doing it for probably 20 years yourself. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think it's, I, I, I want folks to know kind of where we stand on this. And it, and Jake and I are also not aligned on these things. You know, we we have a lot of common ground, but our rankings, the songs we like on like on albums are always you know are typically very very different. So yeah, very true. We've talked a lot about that here, and yeah, hundred percent agree that you know this is a Ouija board, and it's you and I and whoever you know was part of the staff at any given time, as well as I think the biggest hand in the Ouija board is our readers. You know, if our readers say they want something or they want more of it, you know, we give it to them. And this, you know, competition, which we'll get, you know, we let the readers have the final word, which was so dope. But yeah, I think it's interesting just for context sake. And I have to say, I've never, I've never written down a top 10 album list before. And I did this. Um, I didn't want to get too in my head about it because I can do those things. I just literally spent one hour and did some, you know, it's kind of like when Ebro and Mike Tyson, and everyone's doing those lists three years ago. I was just out from, from my heart and from my mind and they met in the middle. So, yeah. So we're going to do our, our own personal top 10 list. And then we're going to go through the top 20 as decided by millions of fans. So question for you, before we get into our own, you said you've never done this before. Do you think that if you were to do it next week, it would change? Yeah. I've always said that. Like if you ask me my top five MCs and, and you've really articulated this to, you know, some of the people that, that we've, we've covered on the highest level, you know, there's certain folks that like your, your top five lists of MCs or your top three is different perhaps today than it was 10 years ago. Um, and I do, I think this is a, this is a, a malleable, malleable list. Um, I don't know that it would change that much. The positions might truly, the funny thing is, is on mine, there's no repeats. I don't think there's repeats on yours from two albums from any one artist or act. But I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there's times where certain artists, their, their album, to me, the, my opinion of their best work can change sometimes. Um, and yeah, I, I acknowledge that. I don't, I don't do anything that's, oh, this is set in stone. So this is me right now. But I do think it's an honest list and it's one I stand by and, and, and I know you do too. That's why we're doing it. So what you just said about, um, you know, it being difficult sometimes to pin down the best album for a particular artist and it may change at different times. A great way to start. Uh, let's, let's go with number 10. What's your number 10? ATL Eons by Outcast, which a hundred percent speaks to your point, because if you were to ask me next week, it could as easily be Staconia um, or Equemini. Yeah. Uh, and why, why ATL Eons? To me, it's funny. Like that is, outcast lyricism on the highest level um i love the way it's produced but at a time when beats were really getting out in front of the artists you had the you know sample craze going on and all of that um i thought they they created um 
something truly, truly distinct. Um, and, and Organized Noise, Earth Tone 3, Outcast kind of dimmed the lights on production and made it about, you know, lyricism and content. And, you know, not for nothing, I think, you know, it is important to have different voices regionally, um, just as there are all these other things. And to me, that's the definitive Southern rap album, um, yeah. you know, of all time. But yeah. So for me, number 10 is Kendrick Lamar's Damn. And I know people are going to be mad already because I got a dude from like the 2010s in here, the top 10. You know, we also talked about nostalgia in our first GOAT competition. We did a, uh, we did a uh, documentary on that. And the interesting thing is, I don't think a lot of people really have the, the proper context on nostalgia. You know, so you think about Rakim, Eric B. and Rakim. They had a run from, call it 1987 until about 1982, 1993. Um, you know, from paid in full to uh, Don't Sweat the Technique, I think is when most people would say their catalog, you know, really like shown. That's four or five years, right? That is not a long amount of time. Uh, but people back then were already calling Rakim by 1992, the greatest lyricist of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with, with Biggie. Biggie had two albums and some singles, yet he is afforded uh, the notion of certainly King of New York, and a lot of people think he's the greatest MC of all time. Tupac had uh, a run from 1991-92 with Digital Underground to 96, uh, five years. If you start to really break down people's catalogs and the time that they truly had impact, it's typically a five-year period. Now, Kendrick has been doing this for uh, meaningfully now for uh, for 11 years. You know, um, at Section least. 80. Yeah. Section 80 is when he had his breakout. Even if you go to Good Kid, Mad City, that's uh, uh, 2012. So now we're talking ten, a decade. And dude has had arguably four classics. Um, Vertically still out on Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, but it's a ph- another phenomenal album. He's got five incredible albums, way more material of high quality than any of the artists I just mentioned. And that's no shade because m- most of the people I mentioned are, are some of my favorite artists of all time. So, yes, I'm being defensive without even being provoked yet, but I'm just laying context for why I would pick an album like that. Now, to your point, I could have gone personally with. Good Kid, Matt City, or, or um, you know, reasonable or um, Section eighty, Section okay. eighty, easily. To Pimp a Butterfly is probably my least favorite, but I respect it tremendously because of what he did. Mm-hmm. Damn, for me, I went with it because it combines all the greatest elements of Kendrick. Um, it is his highest commercial success, first of all, and you know we should talk about what makes a great album. Critically, it was universally acclaimed. Um, thematically, it is one of the most incredible con- concept albums ever executed. The forward, backwards, the religious you know, themes, like all of it. Uh, it just brings everything together. It won a Pulitzer, like the only non-classical, non-jazz album, period, ever. Like not, no no rock, no, um, no arm, nothing else has ever won a Pulitzer. So to, just the accomplishments are through the chart so it could arguably be higher but i brought it in as number 10 well and i'm glad it's there you know i do think it's i do think there are albums of the last 10 years that that 
you know, the case can absolutely be made for top 10 of all time. And um, Kendrick, I think, is responsible for at least two of those. And, and damn, I have no objection whatsoever. It's not about me. It's your list. But yeah, yeah, I like the way you said that. And it's funny because I think these are two great examples, again, where, you know, if you spend a week and you listen to nothing but Good Kid, Mad City, or you take a week and you listen to nothing but, you know, Southern Playalistic, you might come back and approach this list different. Biases are real. You know, they are hundred percent real, but I, I like the way we kicked it off. What about, uh, I'll well, keep, and, keep and let's mic. talk, uh, let's talk about great album. What makes a great album? Um, for me, it's obviously the music has to be great. Um, you know, I think the lyrics have to be on point and meaningful. I think that the flow has to be there. I think that it should be a non-skippable album. Like no song should be skipped. I also do think that it has to have had some influence on the culture. Like it has to have changed the direction of music um, in a way that we hadn't seen before. And I think commercial success is important too. You know, there's a lot of great albums that never make the light of day. And I think it's hard to like say it's great if it doesn't achieve a certain level of, of commercial success too. But what do you think? I like what you said. I think commercial success is part of the conversation, but not all, you know, and even shout out to Rolling Stone, you know, on their 200 and it would be a, a grave misnomer if it wasn't there, but they have an album like Cannibal Ox's The Cold Vein, which I don't believe ever made the charts, but it influenced culture. Like that, that is somewhere in the, the origin story of Run the Jewels, you know, just by LP production and, and that style of rapping. I think you got an Earl sweatshirt or a Tyler that's a derivative, you know, the odd future cats. Like it, it's relative. Um, so I think, you know, mainstream penetration is what I'll call it matters, but it's not always commercial is probably the lowest on the totem pole for me with that. I think it's a calculus personally, you know, and you could have more of one and less of the other, but yeah. if you reach a certain kind of composite score, I think that all those elements like play a role. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's the only thing I kind of question, but um, yeah. And, and it is, it's, and I think all of us, you know, treat that differently, you know, other. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, let me keep it on you though. Number nine. So number nine is, is my outcast pick. Um, I got a Quimini for me. That album is just incredibly musical. Um, you've got songs like Spotty Addy, Dopalicious, and, um, uh, you know, it just to me, you know, um, um, Liberation with Erica and CeeLo, just musically, they went to a different place. Uh, you know, they, they were always soulful. They had Funky Ride on Southern Playalistic, and that was a, a musical album, too. But this one... I just thought was Andre and big boy at their best and, and musically just, it just speaks to me at my core. Um, how about you? What's number nine for you? Number nine for me, this is where I made sure I was being, you know, true to myself and the album that I've often advocated um, as my personal favorite is hard to earn by Gangstar, which, you know, it's a gold album, but it's, it's probably of the things on our list, one of the lower selling again to the commercial point. But I think it's where Guru and DJ Premier um, really both challenged themselves and met in the middle, even though, I mean, we have, we have some great, we have a great piece on Ambrosia where I spoke to Premier on the 20th anniversary of the album, um, excuse me, the 25th anniversary of the album, um, you know, and I know that some of the sessions, they were, they were pretty contentious, you know, that, that uh, now you're mine, you know, Guru literally just walked out of the studio. I think he even you know, got physical with Primo. 
but to me that is um you know one of those albums that kind of met the new york sound at the top you know with with what um you know our artists like biggie and ll and um you know kane and your eric b and rakim and then also represented the underground too um and i just think that those those artists were at their peak and for me to do a top 10 list and not put that one in there um would not be would not be true to myself and i've listened to it recently and i do think it's an unskippable album yeah yeah okay cool so uh let's keep it on you for number eight number eight blueprint jay-z um and it's funny to your point if you would have asked me five years ago i was i always used to argue that that um, Black Album was Jay's best album, which is not a popular answer. I tend to find people are either of the Blueprint School or the Reasonable Doubt School. There might be some now that argue for 444. Um, but I've really come back. And I was around, you know, I bought the Blueprint the week it dropped back in September of 2001. But I think that it's really showed itself in time. It's influence on culture. Um, Jay making a pivot, you know, with his subject matter. And yeah, I mean, just just that well into a career, because at that point, you know, Jay's over 10 years into recording songs, you know, five into making albums to take that step of evolution 100 percent. And again, there's songs that I like more than others on there, but it's an unskippable album for me. Let me ask you this question. What's the first Jay-Z album you heard? Um. I would say it was volume one, actually, if I'm being truthful. I, because uh, I, yeah, I remember the singles rollout for that. I remember Sunshine and, and some of those things that Jay has looked back and called missteps. I definitely heard that before Reasonable Doubt. What about you? Yeah, I think, so I think, um, I think this speaks to uh, the historical context we've been talking about. I think mm-hmm. when it, an album plays differently for you, when you live through the era than when you go back and revisit the catalog. Mm. And I'll use that, you know, with Prince. So Prince was my, is my favorite artist of all time. The first album I heard of his was 1999. I then went back and listened to, um, you know, Dirty Mind and the Prince album and uh, For You and all of this and controversy and all that. And no matter how much I like those albums, they'll never speak to me the same way that 1999 did and others, because I heard them at that stage. And that's that's what kind of primed my ears for Prince. I think it's the same for 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 rap music, too. I, I think because uh, for you to hear volume one first, that's a really interesting because I think most people would say that's probably Jay's weakest album. Yet um, it is is it's the one that brought you in, you know. Yeah, and I I actually stand up for Volume One a lot. I think I think Jay's the weakest album to me is Magna Carta, Holy Grail. That just okay. was really rough. But I know what you're saying, and that's real. But what's interesting, and I'm not disagreeing with you, but you know, the first time I think I heard Gangstar was full clip the single. You know, and Moment of Truth had come out the year before. I'm 14, 15 years old at the time. And then I went back because I was enamored with this group, the way they sounded, Guru's voice, the wisdom. And I bought their catalog on Columbia House, you know, or, or what was the other one? BMG. And that's how I fell in love with Hard to Earn, which at that point was already five years old. Um, I'm not one of those people that copped it on March 8th, 1994, the day my sister was born. But um, yeah, I mean, context is everything. But there are times where you'll find an artist that you lock in with 
and do your research and really connect with their formative body of work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. So for me, number eight is Ready to Die by Biggie. This is another one where it's really tough for me. Like musically, sonically, I actually think I like Life After Death better. I think it's the better album. I think it is probably the best double hip hop album ever made. Um, I think both discs are pretty much unskippable. And so just the volume of material, the classic material and the variety you can go from, um, you know, him collaborating with R. Kelly, the Bone Thugs and Harmony to, um, you know, Ten Crack Commandments, like just it, it touches, it checks so many boxes musically uh, and so well. I just think it's an incredible album. The reason why I went Ready to Die, though, is because when you think about where hip hop was at the time, you know, Death Row and the West Coast had been running hip hop. They had run New York off hip hop off the map. The birthplace of hip hop was no longer relevant until that bad boy era really started to reestablish it. And you had the Big Mac attack with Biggie and Craig Mack and Ready to Die was that thing. It, in a lot of ways, kind of took the blueprint that the West Coast did and, you know, uh, really recognizable soulful samples combined with hard hitting lyrics and gritty substance and did it masterfully. And, uh, you know, the storytelling that Biggie had on this and just how raw he was and the hunger he had in his voice was different than what it was on Life After Death. So that's why I went with Ready to Die. Yeah, I'm not mad at that. It should be noted. Spoiler alert. That's what Rolling Stone said was the number one album you know, on their list. Um, and, and, and that's a, I'm agreeing with what you're saying of life after death. I think my favorite double album is all eyes on me, which is not an album, you know, Tupac is who I often, you know, credit as my favorite MC uh, spoiler Tupac's not on my top 10 when it comes to album making. And I love that double album, but you made a really good point. When I think of all eyes on me, I think of disc one and life after death is a much more balanced listen. Um, and, and the, the high points are consistent throughout those two discs. Yeah, yeah. So keeping it on you, and and this is important, um, you know, your next one, I think, speaks to some of the the era and generation that's not probably getting um, representation in a lot of lists. Yeah, so my number seven is Raising Hell by Run DMC. Again, if you live through it, that album shifted the culture. Like it was playing on everybody's boombox at the time. Uh, Walk This Way was a breakthrough hit for hip hop. Uh, it was, I believe, the second rap video played on MTV, Rockbox being the first. Um, but it really tore down that wall. It reestablished Aerosmith. Aerosmith went on to be gigantic, and they had been gigantic before, but they were in a time of real kind of, they were at a nadir in their career. Um, a lot of like alcohol dependency and other drugs. Run DMC brought them back. And, you know, they, they boosted the sales of Adidas with my Adidas uh, literally influenced like, you know, before, if they had, if they had done that now, they would have been had tens of millions of dollars for it, like an endorsement deal. Um, Peter Piper is still a joint you can put on and, and set things off the incredible sampling. That album was incredible. And um, for me, it was one of the first truly great rap albums. LL had put out some too. But generally, back then, rap albums had two or three great hits. 
and you know weren't really cohesive. This was a full body of work through and through. Let me ask you a question: Is Run DMC an act where your top ten list is interchangeable to other albums of theirs, or is it always raising hell for you? It's always raising hell. You know, uh, the only other one that could have been close for me is the first album, Run DMC. Uh, that's a great album, but there's a, there's a couple songs that are filler on that. King of Rock was not a great album. It had a couple of good songs, you know. But Raising Hell, that one was that was the it one. for me. Yeah, which is their that was their third album, right? Yeah, third Tougher album. Than Leather is the fourth. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So for for number seven for me, shout out to my my shirt, uh, Midnight Marauders, Tribe Called Quest, and that is absolutely, um, you know, Tribe. It could go uh, low end theory or Midnight Marauders, and I really that was one of the things in compiling this list. I'm back and forth, but to me, I think that um q-tip as a producer ali you know the others involved midnight marauders is one of those perfect marriages of beats and rhymes and that was one of those albums that brought me here to this conversation you know 25 plus years later and i just think you can put it on it it's like nothing before it and it really changed the the field for everything after it it is it is a benchmark ass album uh cool i won't speak much on it because i got a tribe entry coming up as well uh and but i'll talk about it because it's interesting I, you um you sparked a couple of thoughts for me so but i'll talk about it when i talk about tribe um all right what's your number six uh so yeah my number six is it takes a nation of millions to hold us back and to me um you know and that was that was a top uh top five for rolling stone i believe right that that was one of the things I was glad to see on their list because this album, um, you know, and I did not live through it by no measure, but I put it on. And to me, when I think of the word revolutionary in hip hop, you can say that about the chronic and melody and things like that, but the sound, the lyrics, the substance, the entire total package, that is, that's the jam. I mean, to me, that is, that is the standard of what a hip hop album could be. And arriving in 1988, it just really is, the new mark to be in my opinion you know yeah this is one so it, it's actually my number six too it's funny that we we agreed on on the, the ranking for that i will say though that i could have easily had it in my top five yeah um i think that what dropped it out of the top five is that sonically it just is um very dated at this point when you listen to it um but in terms of what it did, it launched a, it, well, it didn't launch it because Yo Bum Rush's show covered similar themes, mm-hmm. but it took the uh, pro-Black um, conscious rap uh, era to a whole different level when it dropped. Um, and I think it influenced like film, you know, it's when Spike Lee came out and obviously he had them as part of his Do the Right Thing soundtrack it really launched a movement of black pride that we hadn't seen since the seventies. And, um, you know, Chuck, his voice was so piercing and having the foil of Flav uh, there too, just, and sonically what the bomb squad did in terms of just the all out, like assault that they did on your ears with a collage of samples and noises. And there's no, never been an album made like that again uh so yeah that one is incredible the scratches you know terminator x and johnny juice and just that 
you know, orchestral cacophony is what, you know, I'll call it on the fly this morning. But yeah, that and you're right. It could easily be in my top five, too. And uh, as a spoiler alert, that's the that's the um, earliest album to make my top 10 list. And that was something I really wanted to make sure of because the hip hop of, of the 80s, um, you know, was something that I, I hold near and dear, even though I didn't live through it in real time, you know, consuming it. But yeah, that was a great one. So um, number five for you. Yeah, for me, it's Enter the Wu-Tang, 32 Chambers. Um, it's really interesting because I've never been like a diehard Wu fan. Like I, I love, you know, various songs and their music. But for me, I really always respected the movement that this launched. Uh, it was completely contrary to what you heard on the radio at the time. This was during the height of the death row kind of bad boy era. Um, there were mainstream samples. Everything was pristinely mixed. It was club music. It was radio music. And all of a sudden you had this dirty, grimy, like just, you know, back alley sound that was, you know, the antithesis of all that. And you had nine dudes and, you know, um, Never had you seen a group like that. Maybe like the closest would have been Stetsasonic or something. You had all these different voices and all these styles and, you know, the fusion of the martial arts. It was just a whole, um, the the entire package was was groundbreaking. And so I always respected that. And I love songs like, you know, you know, I love soulful hip hop. And so songs like uh, Cream and Can It Be So Simple and, you know, so obviously there was great music on there too. Uh, but for me, it was the total package that, that makes it so important. I like the way you broke that down. Yeah. And I'll, I, more on that later. Um, you know, for me at number five, it's an album you already shouted out, Ready to Die. And, and you, I liked what you said about it, Reggie. But I also, to me, that's like, you know, a lot of artists, I think, aim for cinematic albums, you know, of making it feel like it has a beginning, a middle and an end. And there's, there's an arc. And I think that no one up until that point, you had concept albums from De La Soul and you had these very distinct places and vibes, you know, I think of the chronic, but Biggie's ready to die. It feels like an autobiography, you know, the way, it, I mean, it literally begins with birth and it ends with, you know, um, and I just think it's every time I listen to that album, I tell myself that it makes its own case to be number one, which is what Rolling Stone deemed. For me, I put it at number five. I think it's incredible. Um, and it's, to me, Biggie's best moment. You know, I, I, I like what you said about Life After Death as a double album. For me, when I'm in a Biggie mood, it'll always be Ready to Die or his uh, best of mixtape by Mr. C. Mm, mm. I like that. I like that. Okay, so number four for you. Number four, this is another one um, that I got to be true to myself. And it's an album, as we talk about biases, that I think suffers. And it's De La Soul is Dead. You know, De La's second album. It's, I would say, their darkest album. They were hella chippy. Um, you know, upset at the label, upset at their rap peers, upset at where the culture was going. And they made an album that is completely unskippable to me. You know, as we talk about Biggie as a movie, um you know De La is a children's storybook you know and they have fun with that but the use of sampling the use of humor but underneath that humor you're dealing with you know loss of innocence sexuality you know um survival drug addiction all of that to me it is it is 
it is so important. And I think that I think that history and lists often put De La in the backseat, especially within native tongues. And I adore Trab. I'm, I'm wearing the shirt today. But I think in 2022, where you have to go through YouTube and create a playlist or reach for an album or a CD to listen to De La Soul and just about any other group, um, you don't have to do that. I think that they suffer. And this was one where I want to plant the flag, be true to myself, be true to my own list and, and give them their props. Let me ask you this. Do you think that it is more groundbreaking than Three Feet High and Rising? I think Three Feet High and Rising broke the ground. Um, but I think that, you know, I there was a time in my life where I loved me, myself and I. Um, now it's not a song that I ever seek out on its own. But I look at a song, you know, like Keeping the Faith or, you know, Ha Ha Ring Ring. Um, and those records jam to me in a different way. I think it's the better of the two albums, obviously, based on this list. Groundbreaking, no, because you're, you know, it, it lives in 1989. You know, they bum rushed the show with that album. Totally new sound, breaking all these conventions. But I feel like De La is dead. It, these four guys in the driver's seat defying you know, their A&R, their label, and what the industry had perceived them as. So that's what makes it a better album. Does that answer the question? I think it's a bold choice. I think it's the boldest choice on this entire list. Uh, so I applaud that. That's dope. Uh, well, I mean, it is just, I mean, not, not to, but I mean, De La is dead, and there's a lot of five mic albums that are not on our list, but at the pinnacle of the source is a five mic album, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's a five mic album uh, because of contrast. You know, I think that if three feet, I think three feet high and rising is starkly different than this. And because of that, for them to come out and show that kind of range and basically refute everything that made them successful was an incredibly courageous move and also musically impressive. But I don't know that it it stands as great as it is without that contrast. I think you needed both uh, in order for it to, to come off that way and get that five mics. That's a dope point. I mean, you know, does is De La Soul is dead as interesting if it's the first album, you know, yeah. and that's that's huge. I mean, that's that's really huge. And and um, yeah, I think yeah, I, I I dig that. And I'll just add that that De La is certainly a group um, that has you know, if you would have asked me this question two or three years ago on the right day, Balloon Mind State might have made my top ten. Three Feet High and Rising, I, I listened to it on a drive last week end to end and then the remixes and I'm like, man, this is incredible. And if we weren't doing top 10, if we were doing, you know, uh, top 15 or top 20 De La is a name that you're going to hear again for me. But right now De La Soul is dead. Is it? Yeah. I'm actually surprised given how much I know you love hard to earn and Gangstar, that it wasn't higher. Um, is that because this, you're trying to make this an objective list, you know, quote unquote, or, um, rather than like a Jake's favorite album list? Or yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and my favorite album list is, is, is bizarre. You know, I mean, th there's always been an, an objectivity there, but I'll listen to an album that I feel doesn't get its representation. And I think that hard to earn a De La Soul is dead, which is the answer to the question you asked me in April of 2013 of my favorite albums, I go back and forth on those two. Um, and I do think De La is, is more um, cutting edge in the context of what it is. I mean, it's their second album, Hard to Earn is Gangstar's fourth. 
Um, so they had a chance to evolve and do this. But De La is just bolder, more out there, more colorful. Um, yeah, and I know there's there's people that'll fight me on that. So so let me ask you this: If those are your two favorite albums, why not rank them number one and two? What like uh, objectively places them like higher on the list for you, or lower on the list? I should say. Because I, I maybe this is just twenty years of training. Like it's still I have to um, I have to look. There's a part of me that has to be objective about it too. Um, like I will always, I will always put part of my opinion against history too. And I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, that this is, this is number four. I think, I think the next three albums, um, I incorporate my own taste. I look at history. I look at, take a step back of just context and I give it up to them. But I, I know what you mean. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I personally struggle with, with, with these lists. Yeah, I'm wondering, is the objectivity because of how you know that other people view them because of the impact they might have had on, uh, you know, on the culture or, or like, like what I'm just trying to get it and what it is, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not it's not like willing. It's not fear. Or it's not um, conformity or anything like that. But frankly, independent of my taste, you know, there are albums that I just feel are flat out better, like. You know what I mean? Like there are albums that I can, I can look at what they mean, look at what I, what I feel and advocate for mine. I mean, there's, there's incredible albums that are not on either of our lists. And I look at, at, at their, at their merits collectively as a culture, as well as myself. And I kind of reached that conclusion, but does that sound murky? It doesn't, uh, you know, I, I will use it. I'll use the word conformity and, um, I'm going to actually, I will take that and lean into it and embrace it. You know, if, if it were just my list, I probably would have had a couple of Kendrick albums on right. here, but I understand that the collective, um, you know, views that differently. And so in trying to create an objective list or a list that really reflects hip hop culture, I can step outside of myself and, you know, start to like take in inputs from history, you know, from other people, from like critical acclaim, from commercial, all those things and put together a list that I think is not just about me. And so yeah. that is conforming to some degree, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that I've always enjoyed about AFH and working with you and other staffs that I've been part of, I've been really pushy about this issue. Like, you know, it's not about you you know, it's not about me. There always needs to be, you know, a contextual lens of what is somebody, you know, really um, capable of and what are they doing? And that's the way I kind of always set my chart against history. You know, like uh, I'm trying to think of a sports analogy, but, you know, there, you might have a favorite player that's not in the Hall of Fame or not anywhere on the league leaders. But when you're talking about the greatest, just to throw your favorite player in there, um, that seems like a disservice to history and I really even though I made this list in an hour I mean I know these albums by heart um I I'm always considering the annals of history yeah all right so my number uh four is Illmatic and I think that that's probably going to be controversial for a lot of people um a lot of people place especially who are you know part of our readers and audience 
place this as number one um for me and it's great but it is crazy to me that rolling stone had it at number 24 that's just uh, I, I think that I, I personally believe in you know this is not me trying to i think it just i think it um harms the credibility of a list like that to have illmatic so solo um personally but um for me i put it at number four you know it's 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 so many firsts it's it's um the first album to really have that many super producers on it, you know, Primo, Large Professor, um, Pete Rock, just, Huge um, it yeah, it, it just, it, it kind of broke the mold, but it also, Nas, it wasn't the producers overshadowing Nas. It was always Nas's album. Uh, it's short. And, um, you know, I think that the conciseness makes it, a better product than if it had been 18 songs, but the same number of quality songs. Um, the storytelling is impeccable. Um, it is an MC uh, really coming in and um, leaning into hit the hype and 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 meeting it, maybe even surpassing the expectations. It's almost like LeBron in basketball. The tape leaked. I had the tape four or five weeks before the album came out. Um, that said, um, it's not my number one album. Um, and, you know, I think when we're getting into top four albums, it does start to become very subjective. I just, um, I know I recognize the impact it had, but I think it's a very East Coast centric album. And I think that if you start to move outside of the East Coast, the number of people who would put it at number one gets smaller and smaller. And mm -hmm. so because I'm from the Midwest, and embrace lots of different styles of hip hop early on. It just never grabbed me as like the holy grail of albums. I think it's a phenomenal album, but it, it's not just the unquestionable number one album. That's bold and real, and I'm not mad at it, you know. Um, and I'll, I'll say more on Illmatic later. Yeah. Um, so for number three, uh, I'm going to go with The Chronic. And again, you know, for me, 2001, great album, um, never has entered my conversation for top 10 of all time. For reasons I think you articulated of just, you know, similar to De La, what Dre did, and I know he started to do it at the second NWA album, but the injection of melody, the fact that he brought in, um, you know, relative, not relative, unknown Snoop Doggy Dog, like he had been on Deep Cover, Lady of Rage, had one verse on a Chub Rock album in 91. Like he's bringing in people, RBX, um, Daz and Corrupt that are not well known and making them, making them matter, you know, introducing them on the best of red carpets. And, you know, yes, there's songs on there that are more, you know, music, uh, musical, just like big, you know, but over time I've come to appreciate a Let Me Ride, you know, especially when, we're appreciating these big ballads from Kanye West. You know, I love the, the reconsideration of Parliament Funkadelic throughout the album. I love a song like Stranded on Death Row that is just, you know, I put that against any posse cut ever. Um, and again, you have these artists that are literally starving, but rapping to make a name for themselves. And again, just the iconography of what this album meant visually, sonically, the way it, it changed culture. I think it influenced Ready to Die. I mean, that's that's been documented. Um, it, it definitely deserves to be um, on the upper part of this list for me. Yeah, uh, I won't say much about The Chronic uh, right now. Um, 
for me, number three is Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest. And I, I think we're getting to the territory of goats. You know, um, everyone on um, my top three is a goat of a particular category, in my opinion. Uh, for me, Tribe Called Quest is the greatest group of all time. Um, you know, this this album, The Low End Theory, is where Fife really came into his own. You know, we did a great interview, oral history of that with Bob Powers and Skef Anselm, um, talking about the creation of this. And Fife was very, very understated on the first album. Like, you didn't think of him as a great rapper. On this one, he was incredible. Had a great posse cut with Scenario. The music was incredible, really tapped into that jazz sound. Now, you said that uh, Midnight Marauders sounded like nothing before. I would argue that uh, my, for me, um, and this again, hearing Low End Theory first and like living through it, um, Midnight Marauders is fantastic too. I just saw it as kind of like Low End Theory 2.0. Like I thought it built on the same themes, the same sonic template and stuff like that. And to me, it's almost like the Chronic in 2001. Um, I thought you were going to say Doggy Style. Yeah, no, okay. Chronic in 2001, where, uh, you know, one album maybe more musically um, superior, but in terms of what the first album did to change the course of music and uh, launch a, a career and all that other stuff, I see this one as, as more important. So I rank it higher, and it's just musically my, the, my favorite of the two. Yeah, I like what you said, though, because I can't, I can't, I think I heard Midnight Marauders before I heard Low End Theory, you know, yeah. and, and not having that con that, that contextual lens matters like that matters in this discussion. And again, that's why I state these lists. I mean, this is like I said, the first time I think in 20 years I've ever done this, I do it with a soft voice because, you know, especially on this part of like, you know, I, I depend on folks like you um, that live through it. I, I want that. And, and you can't create that which you can consider it and it should be known. And yeah, I think what that album did for jazz um, is incredible too, you know, yeah. just of making it part of the discussion. Um, so number two for me is one you already spoke about, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, end-to-end um, -end burner for me. I love that album. It, if you catch me on the right day, it, it could easily be my number one. And, and like you, um, I think I'm a bigger Wu-Tang fan than you are um you know just within the whole family tree of, of solo albums and all of that but I am not somebody there are people out there that are much bigger woo fans than I am but I think that everything went right on this album I think you know every verse has impact every beat is RZA at his absolute best I think it's his finest production hour period um the skits the whole the whole imagery the style the grit you know, the way they captured um, a forgotten place, you know, like Staten Island in the hip hop discussion and pushed them onto the scene. It, it's just, it's truly, truly, truly remarkable. And um, yeah, so easily my number two. Number two for me is Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z. Um, for me, Jay is the greatest MC of all time. Uh, I think it is just a combination of so many things, flow, uh, entendre, uh, subject matter, longevity, commercial success, like there's all sorts of things that uh, put him in that category for me, although Kendrick is creeping up there for me too. Um, and I think this is his greatest album. It's the first one. Um, he believes it's his greatest album. I think it is, it's um, 
his among his top two most personal albums i'll put mm-hmm. this and 444 but two very different stages of life this is the culmination of 26 years i believe it was at the time for him which is why he also thinks it's his best album uh you know independent did it on his own uh, after being kind of shunned by the industry um to me, it's just a masterpiece. It's unskippable. I still listen to it, you know, at least a song probably every month or so. Um, it is one that just has stuck with me. And so Reasonable Doubt is my number two. Yeah, I mean, and I look at that album, which is, is you, you catch me on a certain day, it could easily be in my top 10. I think it's a classic, incredible album. But similar to the way that Rock Kim evolved flow in the 80s of making it conversational. And, you know, I was just listening to... Uh, I think it was Craig G and somebody else talking about Rakim rapping, sitting down, you know, like the way that he just was so smooth. I think Jay did that on another level for the nineties. Like Jay's rapping voice is not performative, especially by the time you get to that album, he's talking to you and it's a conversation. And again, that sets the table for, you know, Andre 3000 for Kendrick Lamar for, you know, I know, I know Dre is a contemporary three stacks, but of having this relationship between the speaker and the listener that still can be well-produced on a high level and reasonable doubt is just, just that, you know, remarkable album. Yeah. All right. So what's your number one? My number one is Illmatic. And I am somebody that believes um, that all killer, no filler thing is real. And, you know, 10 songs, just under 40 minutes. I think Nas stepped up to the plate and, you know, and and batted 10 for 10 on it and i think what you alluded to a moment ago i don't i think there's super producers in retrospect but i think in 94 you know premiere pete rock q-tip track masters um les you had you had great large professor you had great producers coming into their own but what's amazing about that album is it still sounds so cohesive you know you're going through a food court of the best of the best in that moment and you're coming out with something that still meshes really well together. And it, you know, of all the albums we're talking about, um, you know, this one is kind of a, um, a journey into manhood. You know, Nas started making it, I believe, in his upper teens. You know, certainly he started working with Large Professor when he was a teenager and releases this album in his early 20s. And you can say the same about Ready to Die or Reasonable Doubt, but it really feels like just based on subject matter, a guy transitioning from adolescence into adulthood and coming into the world. And that's why this album, you know, is, is, is bigger than itself. And you, uh, I'll be fully transparent. You called me a coward for this at the top of the call. <laughs> um, and I, I accept that. I mean, I think Elmatic is an answer that, you know, can't be fucked with for lack of a better, but I do believe, and I felt this way every time I finished listening to it, damn, this is, this is the best. This is the one. All right. You know, uh, I can't argue against it. Like uh, a, a lot of people, um, many, many, many people agree with you. So, you know, again, at this point, I think it does start to get subjective. For me, number one is the chronic. And, um, you know, you talked about it. I think what did it for me is, first of all, I do think the great Dre is the greatest producer of all time. And this is his greatest work. Um, it launched the career of Snoop Dogg. N.W.A. had 
definitely started to like knock on the door of hip hop and you know, start to like erode that East Coast dominance. The Chronic absolutely destroyed it and put the West Coast on its back. Um, I think the craziest thing about The Chronic for me is, you know, in addition to it also being an unskippable album front to back, and it's almost like a compilation or soundtrack for Death Row Records. It launched that label, made it into what it became, still one of the most revered record labels um, um, ever in hip hop, is that it made gangster rap, the most hardcore gutter rap commercial. It was top 10, top 40. Like you heard it on pop stations. This is the first time you ever heard explicit music like that on top 40 radio. It became like, it made hip hop like a, like a Motown sound. Uh, it was ubiquitous. And that to me is what ushered it into the mainstream phenomenon that it is now. It was not that before. It was still underground to a large degree. It was still considered black music and uh, the chronic just made it a worldwide phenomenon. So, but again, I I mean, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So I think, I think anything that like completely shifts all of culture like that, um, you know, it, it like puts it very, very high on my list. But to your point with me about Gangstar, you know, Hard to Earn and De La Soul is dead. Am I correct in saying the Chronic, be it your best album, is not your favorite album, right? Chronic is my, my favorite album. I oh, love wow. The Chronic. Yeah, okay. I, lo- I love the Chronic. Uh, and my favorite Dre album, for sure. Yeah. And my favorite album, album of all time. Who? Um it might be it's, it's 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 that or reasonable doubt um you know or low in theory those are my top three you know okay. I, I love i do love um my kendrick albums too and but those three you know those three are like stand with any for me interesting cool yeah. and then that's your one two three so I, I i respect it and and yeah i um and yeah that's a that's a pretty good list so i think it's important um you know, to speak about what our readers told us in 2015 and 2016, because to, to us, and there's a lot of overlap here. Um, that was, I, I mean, we alluded to it at the top, but that was something that we kind of used um, in headlines is these are the definitive albums based on what you are telling us. And not for nothing. I mean, in 2015 and 2016, you know, we had millions upon millions of people coming to the site. Is that, that's fair to say, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so yeah, our list is is our list, right? Like, and uh, it's personal, it's subjective. Uh, we're entitled to our opinion. I believe subjective our opinion, objective. Yeah, I, I believe <laughs> our opinion holds weight because of who we are and what we've done for the last, you know, combined like 40, 50 years now. But this list we're about to talk about now is the list that matters. It is the most important list, and I think it is the most reflective list of. Um, any body of hip hop uh, because it was voted on by these millions of fans uh, over, over time. And so I'm confident in saying this is the definitive um, top 20 hip hop list. And if folks want to fight me, you're going to be fighting, you know, millions. Like it takes a nation, nation of millions <laughs> to hold us back. Cause we got, that's what we got on our back with this. So um, yeah, let's go through this. Um, like you said, there's a lot of overlap, uh, but let's start at number 20. Um, yeah. So point of context, yeah. we did this, we did this, um, you know, NCAA basketball style. So there was a definitive sweet 16 
for beyond that, the top 20, these were the closest margins of loss. Um, so of, of that, of that sequence that led to the 13. So I think 20 felt good. So we put them here. Um, you want me to do the first, uh, four? I'll do the, I'll do the, I'll do the first, uh, two. Okay. And then you do the next two. Got you. All right. So first number 20 is good kid, mad city. Um, obviously Kendrick's debut major label album. There's debate as to whether section 80 was a mixtape or an album. I, I was put in the album category. Me too. Good kid, mad city, I think is, and, um, is uh like indisputable classic you know um i called it a classic when it first came out five years later i think there's very little debate there was very little debate to that now 10 years later i think it's just it should have won best rap album like we all know the history behind good kid mad city uh it's arguably kendrick's most cohesive sonic album um you know i i, I don't think that it's uh, and the con it's conceptual too. When you start to think about that, to Pimp a Butterfly and Damn, it's really hard to like pick. They all are like just phenomenal albums, and, and you know, obviously um, Section Eighty is too. But Good Kid, Mad City, um, number twenty. Um, number nineteen is Criminal Minded, Boogie Down Productions. Um, that's another one that I think people who were raised with eighties hip hop, a lot of people would have in their top ten, maybe top five. Um, I think it's phenomenal that our our uh, readers have it in the top twenty. I don't think that it was in it was the top fifty even for Rolling Stone. They put it at ninety one. Ninety one. Okay, right. Yeah. So, and this is an album that, in a lot of ways, kind of launched gangster rap. If you think about it, um, you know, Schooly D with PSK. PSK was um, certainly one of the first, but. Um, but this this album, like really, and Chris was not glorifying it, which uh, he was talking about what he really saw in the streets. Um, uh, KRS, that that is, and so yeah, Criminal Minded, number nineteen. Absolutely. Um, for number eighteen, we talked about it earlier. Three feet and high, three feet high and rising. Um, which you know, Rolling Stone had at number thirty three. You know, De La's debut um, arrives the same year as. Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys one year after uh, It Takes a Nation. Just those are the three albums that I think of with Mosaic sampling um, and just grabbing records from any place. Um, but it introduced, you know, kind of three misfits from Long Island and Brooklyn, you know, with Maceo being a Brooklyn cat and, you know, high school guys, Prince Paul, kind of the guy in the shadows with Stetsasonic comes in and, and really um, shows the potential of hip hop that you could be, a human being, not everything had to be quite so, you know, performative and it's an every man album. And I know that, you know, they got labeled off of it, hip hop hippies, which the group obviously, you know, rejected and said, Hey, we're many things. Don't put us in that box either, which is what inspired, you know, the other album that we spoke of earlier, but great album. I a hundred percent, you know, support this being on a top 20 list all day. Um, next up is an artist that we haven't talked about yet. Kanye West with the college dropout. And again, you had an artist coming out of the Rockefeller family um, first as a producer, you know, getting his couple features in and then coming out with a project that I think surprised everyone. And it on one hand had the platinum polish of, you know, being around Jay-Z and Cameron and all those different people, but also, you know, the Louis Vuitton backpack of somebody who was very aware of what was happening with Ruckus, was a fan of, you know, Freeway, what was a fan of 
um, common and all these different things and merge those worlds together in a mid 2000s that I feel like there was gangster rap, there was backpack rap, and there was no middle class. And Kanye did that and as a phenomenal producer, as a provocative MC, did that. And um, it's not my favorite Kanye album, doesn't matter, but our, our readers really went to the mat for that one, um, which was his, I'd say his, his first game changer and that you know definitive of that old Kanye that I think a lot of people want back. Word. All right, you do the next two and I'll do the next three after that. Got you. All right. Um, next up was Mad Villainy at number 16, the uh, Mad Villain album. So, you know, Mad Lib and MF Doom coming together, making an incredible album. And, uh, you know, Rolling Stone had this at 18. Um, you know, and this is another case where I really question that commercial impact part. Um, you know, Mad Villain has been a great selling album for Stone's Throw Records. I think it put Mad Lib on, on radars to go really unique places in the years that have followed. But it, it's not an album that, you know, has a gold plaque or, you know, had radio recognition, but it's tremendous. And I think when you look at producers and MCs coming together with their own universes and making something really interesting and cohesive, that's the one. And, you know, for as much as Operation Doomsday, you and I did a whole episode on MF Doom after he passed, as much as that's um, a breakthrough album for the Doom that we love, I think Mad Villainy is his finest hour. And I think you can make the same case for Mad Lib, who's also been, you know, responsible for some some truly great projects, you know, with, with Freddie Gibbs on down. Yeah. Um, after that, another artist that we haven't talked about yet, Eminem. The Marshall Mathers LP back in 2000, um, you know, sort of like Kendrick, you know, I'll call it M's third album. I think, you know, the infinite LP matters, um, but it's his second major label. And he kind of built upon being, um, you know, a, a, a Trojan horse within hip hop of coming in and, you know, saying the, the quiet part out loud about so many things. And one thing I'll say, even though it's not on my top 10, I will always maintain that the first Marshall Mathers LP is Eminem's best body of work. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Number 14 is Straight Outta Compton by NWA. Another, um, we, we've talked about, uh, obviously, Dre, but NWA really helped to put that West Coast movement on um, the map even before Dre. It wasn't as commercial at, at the time, but it was deeply impactful, um, really shone a light on some of the police brutality that was going on. Um, you know, put gangster rap on the map, that and Easy Does It, put Compton on the map. Compton is a, a household name in hip hop now, but no one had ever heard of it um, outside of Compton, you know, um, or not most people, I should say, uh, before straight out of Compton. Um, incredible branding and um, obviously became a movie and a, t- a movie and a total movement. Um, number 13 is The Blueprint. Jake talked about that already. Um, I think enough said on that for me, it was probably my second favorite J album sonically incredible. I agree with you and just unskippable front to back, really tremendous album. Number 12 is death certificate, you know, and this is where you really start to understand the impact of NWA when you have uh, multiple entrants from people from that group on a top 20 list like this ice cube, uh, obviously was the chief pen in the group, he and Ren. Um, Death Certificate being his second album. Did the first one, went with the Bomb Squad, um, you know, from Public Enemy. And so 
a bit of a different sound, more kind of East Coast sounding than what you would expect from Cube. This album went straight West Coast. Um, Sir Jinx, um, like uh, he had some real heavy hitters on this. And uh, it's my favorite Cube album. Cube is my top three, top five MCs for sure. Um, incredible album. My favorite Cube album too. And, and this is one, you know, not to, not to poke the bear, but Rolling Stone had a 93 and our readers had a 12. And I'm much more in line with our readers than I am with Rolling Stone on this one. Um, you know, next up at number 11 was Supreme Clientele by Ghostface Killer. And I, I personally believe it's the best, uh, you know, this is, this is my spicy take. I believe it's the best Wu solo album. I know that that upsets Purple Tape fans, but Ghostface Killer second album really comes into his own. Again, you know, uses sort of like Illmatic, a, a bevy of producers, but comes up with something really cohesive. Um, Ghost showed that he could be anything while still being himself, just complete spits at convention. Um, and that is just an album of somebody who I think was kind of in the periphery of Wu, um, really, really, really making a case to be the, 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 the best album maker within the crew because Iron Man's nothing to scoff at. And, you know, to go two for two like that, um, I think that's one thing that a lot of, you know, Wu fans can agree on. I think a one-two punch, that's the best one you're going to find in the clan with the GFK. Um, after that, number 10, low-end theory, Tribe Called Quest. I think you, you, you know, much like Blueprint, you already kind of covered that. Um, and then after and that, that... That was a line to uh, Closer with Rolling Stone. They had it at number nine. Oh, yeah. Good, yeah. good call out. Our readers had it at number 10. Um, and then, you know, you already spoke of it, but Equemini at number nine. Um, which Rolling Stone had at number 27, but, um, and, and they went, you know, Rolling Stone went to Matt, went to the Matt for Stankonia, but yeah, our readers really, you know, raised the flag for Equimini. So number eight was the chronic, um, you know, diverged uh, greatly from, uh, but diverged from both Jake's and my list, um, uh, but it, much more so from Rolling Stone. They had it at number 40, which just is a travesty to me, especially when you look at some of the albums that they put ahead of it. Um, but we talked about that. Um, number seven was only built for Cuban links. It's funny because uh, I actually would put this as the best uh, solo album. And it's actually not really solo given Ghost's participation in it. It's, I'd say it's more of a collab album. Great point. But that album uh, really extended on the Wu mythology. I think it uh, took some of the martial arts out of it and really just made it about the street um, street talk. And, you know, you had people walking around calling each other son and God. And, you know, it just really brought New York glory, like New York, um, you know, non-commercial, just gritty, grimy glory back. And, um, you know, just incredible bangers from, you know, Ice Cream, um, you know, criminology that's my joint yeah criminology scarface so many yeah so many on it uh so that was number seven uh rolling stone had that at number 37 again like yeah you know, being off by like uh like 30 slots is uh, very questionable to me but so number six um another one we haven't talked about um or um is, is paid in full and i gotta say this is an album that I had in my top 10 list and I did a swap out kind of last minute. Um, I swapped it out for uh, uh, Equimini, I believe. Um, 
And the reason why I swapped it out is because ready to, uh, so um, uh, paid in full, incredible album, Rakim, one of the greatest MCs of all time. It had some filler, it had a couple instrumentals on it, uh, Chinese arithmetic, and I can't remember the other one. Um, and those are cool. But um, if you'd taken those off, this just would have just been immaculate. Um, incredible album. Rakim, uh, the architect, along with Big Daddy Kane of multi-syllabic rhyme styles, completely changed the way that rap delivery was made, not only in terms of um, the substance um, and the, the, the cadence, but also, as Jake said, the delivery. And it really just sounded very different, that and criminal-minded, than anything that had been out at the time. Uh, Next up, uh, number five, it takes a nation, which is funny. You and I each had it at number six. Rolling Stone had it at number four. Um, you know, we, we covered that album, but our readers, again, and I, it's one of the things I love about the AFH ecosystem is, you know, on this list so far, and I know we still have, you know, four more to read off. You've got albums from the 2010s. You've got albums from the 90s, the 2000s, and the 1980s. And again, we, we really try to create the, the bracket to be inclusive but by the point by the time you get here you know one of those decades could entirely dominate but it's a it's a mirror to the vision you had for afh of like let's create a place where you know 20 year olds and 50 year olds can you know share the same love of hip-hop and and have appreciation across generation um so i love the fact that it made it uh number four is Ready to Die, you know, which we've already discussed. And obviously that's the one that Rolling Stone had at number one. Um, I'll do number three and two, and then I'll give you number one. How you want to do that? Uh, cool. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so number three, Midnight Marauders, um, which, you know, again, we discussed, it could either, it could be any Tribe album. Um, you know, that came in, made my list, did not make yours. And then number two. Wait, and uh, that was oh. number 55 on Rolling Stone. Like, yeah. Again, just wild, wild, wild divergence there. Yeah, and I wonder that too, just as a quick aside. I mean, when you create these lists, you and I each had no repeats in our personal lists. And that has to play a factor. But, you know, with Rolling Stone, it didn't seem like there were many places where there was an album from the same group within 10 or 15 places of each other, which, you know, it, that, that matters. And you wonder what bias that has, um, because it's hard to argue against those two albums being um you know in the in the top chunk of a 200 list yeah so number two was enter the wu-tang um you know rolling stone had it at number eight they had it in their top 10 but yeah it was our uh, our number two in a very closely fought final battle so as some poetic justice as a joke you have to announce what the number one <laughs> album was based on our readers number one was illmatic uh I, I gotta say that when we launched the contest i knew illmatic was going to be number one i thought that there might be a chance that the chronic um did it because i think it kind of depended on the demographic but i i know the importance the historic importance that illmatic has um in the culture for all the reasons that you articulated so it did not surprise me i certainly wasn't mad at this as the num as the choice i think when you start to get to these top five especially um, you know, there's an argument for each of them. Um, mm -hmm. and I, obviously I'll put the chronic in there too. Um, there's an argument for each of them being number one. Uh, but for that many people, um, that we had participate for, you know, millions of people to ultimately conclude that Illmatic was number one, I think says a lot. I think it speaks to the quality of this album. Um, you know, still to this day, Nas, 
uh, tours on it, is celebrated for it. He's gone on to put out documentaries. Yeah, he's gone out to put some of his best work in the last few years. But I think Illmatic is, is unquestionably still a crown jewel in his catalog. One of my favorite headlines in AFH history, uh, it ain't hard to tell, Illmatic is decidedly your greatest hip-hop album of all time. It's a yeah. long headline, but it, it, it was, yeah, that was interesting. And, and, you know, one point I'll just add, too, again, you know, right now you can't find the chronic on DSPs since the acquisition snoops pulled them off. But in 2015 and 2016, you couldn't either. So when these votes were happening, the same Achilles heel that De La Soul is dealing with so is the chronic. And, and that has to factor into something when you have millions of different people voting across six months and they, they care about it, they're invested and they want to listen to an album, listen to the other album and vote. You know, you got to, you know, you, it needs to be said that there's conditions that shape our opinions and our ability to decide. So, And again, this was number 24 on Rolling Stone. Just uh, that that just uh, it, 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 it uh, is very, very odd to me. So, you know, now looking at this list, I got a couple questions. So, well, and, and, and observances. So first of all, it is very, very 90s intensive. Um, there are a few albums from the 80s um, and only uh, two albums from the, the, the 2000s, um, the O's or, or the 10s. Uh, I think it's Mad Villainy and Good Kid, Mad City. Um, that being the case, uh, on the college dropout, there's yeah. three, the college dropout. Well, so, wait a minute. Uh, just, just to oh, be clear. There's a few, yeah. there's a few, the, I think good kid, mad city is the only album from the 2010s for sure. Yeah. From the two thousands, you have college dropout Marshall Mathers, which was year two K, you know, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, mad exactly. villainy and Supreme clientele is also year 2000. Is okay. That, so yeah. that's okay. So we got four or five, which is. A pretty good representation. Uh, I'm not mad at that. Um, two and actually, I think it's pretty good from the 80s, too, because the 80s, just to keep it a buck, you know, albums weren't just weren't as strong then. It was mostly singles and like, you know, compilations. I do think that Ra- Raising Hell should have been on this list, um, you know, uh, or some run DMC representation. But in general, like, I think it's pretty reflective of the culture. I, I, a question for you, though. This was done in 2016. Uh, yeah, 2016. Do you think that now, six years later, uh, there is another album or two you would have put or, or think the fans would have put in this list? Possibly Damn. Um, possibly KOD. You know, those are the two. But I don't know that they're going to reach the top 20 like that. Maybe Damn does. Um, you know, as you were speaking of Kendrick, I do think Good Kid, Mad City, which, you know, came in at number 20, is the best produced Kendrick album. Just in, let me rephrase that. I think it has the most exciting production, um, you know, but damn possibly, just given all the reasons that you stated when you went through your list, could easily have uh, have made it. I'm not sure KOD can compete with some of these other ones. Yeah. Yeah, I think damn. Um I think To Pimp a Butterfly would have been considered as well. It was, Tim, To Pimp a Butterfly was in this list. I mean, it yeah. was in the bracket, but not for nothing. I mean, the album wasn't even a year old, so. Yeah, 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 that makes that makes a big difference. Um, but aside from that, man, I think, I think this list holds, and I think it is a great reflection of the culture. 
Um, it's obviously, like I said, shaped by, you know, millions of opinions. And so I, I give it much more validity than anything that you and I could have crafted or any yeah. other team of, um, of writers or experts could have done. You know, I think that the people have spoken and it's democratic and yeah, I think it's dope to have this list. Yeah, I was always proud of that. You know, there were times, I think, in every GOAT competition that you and I would be disappointed. You mentioned the Lauren Hill one, you know, for you. And I remember, I remember you and I texting about that. But no, when, these, when this album list shook out, I was really, really um, pleased with it. And, you know, there were, yeah, it just, uh, it's emblematic of, of a really dope ecosystem of hip-hop discourse. Yeah. All right, so... Um... New music for the week. A couple of heavy hitters dropped some product. Uh, Drake, out of nowhere, uh, dropped an album. And I think it's dope that Drake uh, can do this. He'll just announce on Thursday night, hey, I'm putting out an album in a couple of hours, and that's what it is, and just let it speak for itself. I'm very curious to see what the sales are for it. Because, you know, I've been saying for a long time that I don't understand why people do marketing ahead of uh, dropping the product anymore when. Um, you know, you can just drop it and then promote it then when people can actually listen to it. I think that it'll have much better traction. I also think it's cool that he and Kendrick and Cole and all these guys don't feel like they need to say anything beyond dropping the music either. You know, Drake did talk about it on his um, OVO show. He has a, a new show on um, Sirius XM and he talked about it uh, before that. I didn't catch the interview. This album's been catching a lot, a lot of hate, a lot of flack, which I find to be interesting because most of it, I believe, is centered around the fact that Drake is not rapping and it's it's over like house beats. He did it in um, as a collab with Black Coffee, and um, for me, I think uh, it's phenomenal. I get a lot of the uh, more life vibes uh, from it. Um, Drake has established himself from the beginning is not just a rapper. He's a singer. He does a lot of different styles and he chose to like lean into something else this time. So it's cool. Let, let the man live, you know, but I, I think, I think it's a dope album. Um, you cool. are as being a resident Drake hater, which, which uh, I, you know, it's funny though. Like if I'm, if I'm got a one hour drive and I, I want to listen to a Drake album, I go with more life. I think that it's, it's really good, well-made, I don't know, you know, it doesn't fit in any one genre for me, but it's not Drake's most lyrical work. Um, Drake's really good at it. I'm, I'm always curious, though, as somebody, you know, he's really caught up in, in legacy, as many artists are. You know, it's, it becomes challenging because there is rapping on this album. My favorite song is actually the, the final track, Jimmy Crooks with 21 Savage. And that's, that's hip hop, you know. Um, you know, how these versatile showcases factor into drake's you know all-time you know consideration as a lyricist um and it's it's interesting i don't dislike the album there's plenty that come out from artists at the top of hip-hop that that i don't like uh, i think it's great summertime music and drake is i think he's called himself that in the past right like the king of the summer um but yeah it's it's interesting because the last few projects he's been very intent on especially with what was going on with Pusha T and Kanye of competing as an MC. And then he completely, you know, makes a left turn or, or circles the block with this one. Yeah. But I, again, I'll, I'll push back and I'll say, why, why does, why does he have to be in that category all the time? He's an artist with multiple facets. And it actually makes me think about one thing we didn't mention about our top 20 list, which is 
there wasn't a single woman on there, mm -hmm. which I also think is a travesty. I think that uh, Lauren Hill, the um, education. Of, uh, education of Lauren Hill is a top 20 album of sorts. The reason why I didn't put it in my top 10 is because there's so much singing on it that I don't really see it as a rap album. I see it as more of just a more of a an R&B album, but, you know, just just music, period. Mm -hmm. And I think that Drake is like that. Like he might just put out an album with bars. He might just put out an album with singing. I think he as an artist is able to do that. I love what Tentacion did. And by the way, if you haven't seen Look at Me on Hulu, I highly, highly recommend that. An immense, immense talent we lost there. But, you know, I think artists should be able to put out whatever they want to, you know, and it's um, up to us to, to judge the music for what it is instead of what we want it to be. That's, I mean, I 100% agree with you, but it's, it's yeah, it it's weird to be in hip hop um, on as media, as, as whatever we are at this point, uh, curators, et cetera, um, and, and Drake is complicated, you know, and I, I like that Lauren Hill analogy because um, I agree with you. I, I struggle with that album because it's it's an incredible album, Miseducation of Lauren Hill. But what box do you put it in? And that gets tricky. Um, and it's different, I guess, when you're Dr. Dre and you can have Nate Dogg singing some hooks or you can have Michelle, you know, um, but you're not the artist that's doing it. And I think that Drake suffers a little bit, you know, just in public perception for that. But this is an album, I've listened to it one and a half times. I will inevitably be listening to it again. I think it's it's good for the time of year. And again, you're absolutely right. Drake, Kendrick, Cole, um, these artists having the ability to just kind of George Bush the button and release an album. Um, I'm very curious. You know, Joey Badass was supposed to drop um, his follow-up to 1999. And on Thursday, he said there was a sample clearance issue and he was going to push it back a few weeks. And as you look at an artist like Joey Badass, who I think is out for um, possibly a number one spot, possibly, you know, pushing to the next level. And we've already watched Joey ascend so many levels. Did he catch wind of Drake doing a surprise album and saying, no, you know what? If I'm going to get that number one or I'm going to get my moment. I better, you know, I better pull back. And it makes you wonder. And then for the artists um, that did drop this weekend, when Drake does something like that, I always wonder what those conversations are like behind the scenes because you know yeah you know they say joey is saying that it wasn't because of drake but it's it's actually poor timing for this to happen because this is the same week where he admitted that he uh ducked out of the logic tour because of a lie he said that you know at the time he had said that you know his eyes were damaged um by, by an eclipse an eclipse uh actually you know what you know let me let me let me take that back he put out a tweet the day before saying that uh, he looked at the eclipse without sunglasses and didn't understand what the big deal was and that our ancestors from back in the day looked at these and didn't have glasses. And so no issue. The next day he uh, pulled out of the next three shows and there was speculation on the internet that it was because of eye damage. He never said that, but he also didn't dis um, dissuade that notion um, and he says that he thought it was funny that, that people thought that and that it was not because of that. So, um, but nevertheless, it was a week of deception where he acknowledged the deception. And so uh, not a great time to like um, argue that it wasn't because of that. But someone who was impacted, and it's a nice segue because 
the the tour that the joy was on like i said was with logic and logic did drop an album too and yeah if i'm logic and this is my comeback album and you called this and this is why he's your favorite rapper uh <laughs> you called the, the the retirement like um you know just nonsense um but coming back from your retirement, all of a sudden Drake like nukes you uh, like a few hours before. That's yeah. that's that's hard. That's hard. I mean, and Logic has had his moments. We, you know, you and I have spoken about it before. I think like three or four times in Nas's career, and and most of those times being after the beef was squashed, Jay Z will release a surprise album. I mean, he's done it several times on my watch. And yeah, I mean, for Logic, it's interesting. So Logic puts out an album called Vinyl Days. And I know we, you and I have a joke, and I've been critical of Logic in the last five years. Um, his, his 2017 album, uh, Everybody, I really like you, convinced me um, to keep, you know, giving that a try. And at the end of the year, that was part of our best of list for that year. And I thought it was really versatile, showed all the facets of Logic. I've struggled with him um, for kind of being a, a disingenuous. You know, he put out the Suicide song, um, you know, the, the 1-800 hotline joint and, you know, almost goes diamond, uh, wins, you know, performs at the Grammys, I think won a Grammy award, maybe not. Um, but then comes in, you know, a couple years later with making fun of it and telling another rapper to kill themselves. And to me, that's corny. I think, you know, anyone who lived through Too Short and Scarface retiring and not, you know, honoring their word or the game or Lupe Fiasco, like, don't do that. Don't do that logic. Cause we know you're coming back and lo and behold, here he is. And I was really excited by this one because it's got a cast of characters that are, you know, some of my favorite MCs and uh, I've said it before, but I'll say one other thing. I'm one of the first people to ever cover logic. You go back to 2011 when I was the editor in chief of hip hop DX and young Sinatra comes out. And I mean, he was already doing his numbers on YouTube, but the media hadn't covered this guy from Gaithersburg, Maryland yet. And I thought he was really interesting and dope and charismatic and brought in um, a strong respect for 90s hip hop. So boom, here you are. And this album, again, was kind of that. So he on there, he has AZ. We have a song atop our playlist um, featuring AZ. He's got Currency, Action Bronson, Royce the 5'9", DJ Premier. Um, who am I forgetting? Uh, just a, he's got Russ on there, yeah. you know. A yeah. number of people um, and, and the title Vinyl Days and the way he did the rollout, it seemed like Logic saying, this is the album I want to make. This is my hip hop album, um, you know, which we've gotten before from Nas. We got it from Russ last year with Chomp 2 because um, Logic is still, you know, a major label artist with a lot of, you know, a lot on the line, you know. and, and he's ind independent now. Yeah, this is his you know, farewell album to Def Jam, um, this new one, Vinyl Days. Yeah. And, and even the last song was, it's called Sayonara and it's logic for about eight minutes thanking different executives at the label, um, but also calling some members of the staff various names. I mean, just a really, really puzzling move. But yeah, any, I, I, that kind of sets the table. I'm curious for you as the bigger logic fan of recent of the two of us, what do you think of the album? I think it's okay. You know, um, I, I wish there had been less skits. Just, I haven't even made it all the way through. Um, I've, I've listened to probably 80% of it, but just mm -hmm. seeing 30 
songs on a track list is daunting, even though you know that a lot of us interludes. I thought the Michael Rappaport interlude was pretty funny. Mm. I like the AZ song. I like the I like the songs we, we have on the playlist. You know, uh, the, the one with Blue is dope. Um, the one with Currency is ill. Um, there's there's some good, and the one with Russ is really dope too. Uh, there's some good good tracks in there, but it's kind of spotty. Um, I, everybody, like you said, was one of my favorite albums that year. And I thought it was cohesive and just going back to what we've been talking about the majority of this podcast. Uh, for me, it's about quality through and throughout. And um, I don't want to have to fight for the good songs, you know, through an album. I want to be able to just hit play and let it ride or else I'm just going to add stuff to the playlist. And I'm never coming back to the body work again. And that's how I feel about this album so far. That's well played. I played through it twice. You know, he's doing he's posted a lot of photos on IG of him and Egon and he's doing a lot of things with Mad Lib medicine show beats. The production's mostly credited to logic and six who's been producing his records as long as I can remember, but Mad Lib is playing a role. Yeah. I mean, that was, he has blue and exile on there and like from Pac Div, that songs on our playlist. I love seeing artists be their truest versions of themselves. Um, but yeah, I think logic has put out, better albums and i can say that after two listens and this one um as the year has certainly spiced up in the wake of kendrick lamar and black star and some different things this album is not currently in what i would consider to be you know the best of for 2022 yeah all right so any other new music you want to cover man no that those were the those were the heavy hitters i'll be eager to see what joey badass does we've got some new joints from him on the mixtape or on our playlist um, but yeah, I mean, now that Drake's out too, anything, it could get really interesting from here, but yeah, yeah, man, uh, it's going to be a long, hot summer for sure. All right. So what's your song of the week? So I've been texting you on, it's also on the playlist. There's an artist, I believe he's out of Chicago. It's fun when you, when you find an artist and the first and only thing you like about them or know about them, not like about them, the first thing you know about them is their music. So, you know, there's a project um, by Def C and Boathouse. And I believe these are Chicago guys. Um, the name of the project is uh, For All Debts Public and Private. And the song, which is on a playlist, is called Ragnarok. I hope I'm saying that correctly. But just incredible production, really, you know, finds the pocket, good use of drums. And it features Kip Stone, which is another artist that's been on my radar. And these guys just go in and it, it, you know, I was texting with my uncle about it. He compared them to like a far sidey sound. I can kind of hear that to me um, a little bit. Actually, even like early mixtape era Yellow Wolf is a little bit what I kind of hear in there of just that sinister um, rapping and having some fun with cadence. But I've really been enjoying that whole project and that song in particular. But um, what about you? Yeah, I'm going to go hard left turn on this. And um, uh, so I've recently found a mixtape that I created back in 1997. And uh, I recreated it as a playlist and rediscovered some songs I hadn't heard in a long time. One of which was Top of the World by Kenya Groove from the Minister Society soundtrack. Uh, I sent it to you, I think, as a song yeah. today. Uh, on YouTube. You sent me a YouTube link. Because it's not on Spotify. It, wow. it is on Apple Music. Uh, but not on Spotify, but just a dope art 90s R&B joint, um, you know, was great um, and menace, like just uh, dope, dope song. So it took me back. So, yeah, you you, you often accuse me of uh, not liking R&B, whatever became of Kenya Groove. 
Uh, I don't know. Because, uh, like, uh, I, I never heard any other songs from Kenya. Um, and I didn't see a bunch on Spotify, but that joint is, I love, I love. That's dope. Yeah, that that is a far left term, man. Well, after a month away, it feels great to be back. I hope we weren't too rusty out there. But I think um, the list that our readers came up with speaks for itself. And one thing I hope, and this isn't to build engagement or anything like that, but I truly care just as a hip hop head, you know, let us know your top 10, you know, in the comments, wherever you see this, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, um, it matters. We care. And, and if nothing else, it gives me something to listen to and reconsider. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, man. So we do it again. Work. All right.